Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. On this week's episode, the Bishop of Burnley, Philip North, tells us why it's time richer dioceses shared their wealth with poorer ones. Madeline Davies fills us in on a story about whether priests in Canterbury are being advised to betray the seal of the confessional. And Adam Beckett goes to an interfaith iftar meal where he speaks to the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. If you don't subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Bishop Philip, thanks for joining us. You, you've written a very powerful article about the inequality in assets between dioceses. Can you just say a bit more about what you are arguing? Yeah, so the issue is that each diocese is a separate charity. Some have inherited vast uh, historical assets and some haven't. Some have a lot of the money in the bank and some don't. And actually that has a very significant impact, um, particularly on availability of stipendiary staff and stipendiary clergy. So basically the more money you've got, the more priests you've got. Um, one particular example is around glebe asset. Glebe is the land that used to belong to parishes, but under a measure in the 70s was went into the ownership of diocesan boards of finance. There's a very direct correlation between the level of glebe asset and the number of priests you've got and what each parish is paying for that priest. And that strikes me as unjust and is also a reason why many uh, parishes, particularly in urban parishes, particularly estates parishes, especially in the north, are really struggling to afford the costs of stipendium ministry. Can you talk a bit about some of the data you've analysed and, and what it's what it's shown? Yes, I've looked at two things. I've looked at uh, the total funds held by dioceses. And what's very interesting is dividing that by the population of the diocese. You get huge disparities. So the wealthiest diocese, um, uh, the figure is £209.40 per person. The poorest diocese is about £21 per person. So some dioceses have about 10 times more funds uh, per head of population than others. And I just don't really get how that can be, really. I understand how it's come about historically. I can't really see how it's fair. You know, surely if we're one national church um, offering ministry to a nation, there should be greater fairness of assets. And we should be deploying our clergy, not on the basis of historic asset, but on the basis of missional need. And that's not happening at the moment. You say we've fallen far from the church in Acts 2, where all was shared much more equally. That's right. And that was, you know, that was done as a response to the cross. You know, on the cross, we see Jesus making of his life a gift to others. So the, so the, so generosity, gift and grace were key ethics in the early church in the sense that you gave away, especially to the weaker. And at the moment, rather than giving away, we're clinging on to our own diocesan assets. And, you know, I, I don't want some kind of, you know, I think going down the line of complex measures or tax and spend is probably too complicated. I think what we need to do is imitate that generosity, gift and grace and see a joyful supporting of poorer dioceses and richer dioceses. Yeah, I mean, you say that proposed two solutions, one which you say is completely unrealistic and one which is more realistic. Could you just say what those two are? One is law. One is a, you know, a new measure in synod under which more assets are held centrally and distributed according to need rather than according to history. But, you know, the chances of that happening, you know, having been on synod for some years, are about one in a zillion. I think I've likened it to the same as Accrington Stanley winning the Champions League. You know, what's, what could be done more immediately is response, which is around generosity and gift and grace. So, you know, if some of the wealthier dioceses sitting on larger assets were able to enter into meaningful long term relationships with some of the poorer dioceses and support particular missional projects making a difference, particularly in poorer areas, I think that'd be really, really exciting and would bring about friendship and relationship and would make us much more like that church that we read in Acts 2. So I'm not trying to set up some kind of childish rich versus poor competition. What this is, is a straightforward call to those who have asset 
to hear the cry of the poor and to invest something in those poorer areas. Because one, one issue is there is a big disparity between north and south. You know, most of the money is in the south of the country, in the southern province. Um, so let's let's build proper friendships between dioceses, which results in investment in mission. What we've seen the church commissioners recently is that is quite courageous, really, in which they've released asset. They've said, what's the point of having money in the bank when there's no big aim to church anymore? They've released asset for missional projects. And if, 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 if wealthier dioceses could follow that lead and release asset for, for evangelistic projects, particularly in poorer areas, I think we'd get some really get something underway here. And that matters massively because, you know, where will renewal come from? It'll come from the margins. It'll come from the poor. It'll come from the outer estates. It'll come from the edges. If we can invest in renewing the church there in those kind of areas, we'll renew the church everywhere. I mean, in your church time speech, you give example of you know, Diocese of Oxford. Very wealthy diocese could fund pioneers for estates in Birmingham or London could strengthen the ministry of Foreman Coalfields in, in County Durham. It, it, those are just, you know, plucking ideas out of the air. Really. There's, there's an awful lot. Those are examples, really. But, you know, one example was Christchurch Norris Green, where, where you know, the, a growing, exciting church the really strong vision of renewing their buildings and they just can't get it off the ground and one reason is of course you know around land values you know if if, i I was struck by an example in the southern diocese where they'd sold a bit of a vicarage garden and the house they built there is on the market for 2.5 million pounds now in the north land does not have that kind of value so somebody like the vicar of christchurch norris green cannot enter into that kind of partnership developers to realize asset so it becomes a kind of double whammy in effect. Not, this, this basic problem about historic asset is then exaggerated by geographical difference around, around wealth, land value, um, average income and so on. And this call for more generosity between diocesan, have you spoken to your Episcopal colleagues about this? Is this realistic given perhaps conversations you've had with, say, Bishop of Oxford or London or those sort of dioceses? Um, I've, I, I have to admit I've not spoken to neither the Bishop of Oxford or London about it. I have spoken to other bishops about it. Some look furtive and guilty and some actually see that there is an issue here. And I, you know, I don't think, and I, there are also... I know that some dioceses are having conversations along these lines. So I don't think this is a million miles away uh, from, from, from being something that's achievable. Do you hope perhaps this intervention might um, provoke some of the conversations? Or... That's precisely what I'm, I'm simply trying to raise an issue here. Um, what I hope is that you know, anything with data, you can try and kill it off by a thousand cuts. Um, I hope we won't get sort of anaraki detailed analysis, but people looking at the big picture. You know, whatever you say, there are disparities in wealth between dioceses because of history and the inheritance of historical asset. Should we be doing something to even that out for the benefit of areas where Christian ministry is becoming very weak? That's really the issue that I'm trying to raise. And I hope that people keep on that big picture. I mean, you talk about Anglican leaders, yourself included, who, who speak out against inequality, yet you say our structures model the inequality. So to some extent, is this undermining the church's witness to speak in onto issues of... Injustice. I think if you're going to raise issues nationally and politically, you need to be ensuring that your own house is in order. Now, I don't think we should be silenced on those issues. I think we must go on speaking out about, about inequality because we're uniquely well placed to do that because we're, we're present and, and, and working in almost every community. We understand what's going on on the ground. So we mustn't be silenced. But in order to authenticate what we're saying in issues around social inequality, we need to be making sure our own house is in order and that we're modelling what we want others to see. And I think there's a question mark about whether we're doing that at the moment. How do you think this, just finally, how do you think this kind of thing, like this idea would go down in, in the parishes where people are giving money? 
um, say in in more wealthier dioceses like Lincoln and Oxford, would they be happy with that money going elsewhere, quite far away? I think there is some evidence. I you know I've not done absolutely detailed analysis, but there is evidence that if you are in a better endowed diocese, you're able to you know you're contributing less for the cost of ministry than you are in a diocese without that endowment. So part of this is yes, saying to people in wealthy areas, be a bit more generous, because in your generosity you're supporting Christian life and Christian witness in, in some of the poorest parts of the country. So there are implications for, for you know, regular church codes in, well, in wealthier dioceses. There will be some kind of knock-on. But actually, if we're one church, if we're serious about being a church of and for the poor, that's, I hope, a challenge that people will be, will be able to rise to. Canterbury Diocese has defended itself against the charge that guidance on its website advises priests to betray the seal of the confessional. Madeline, you've been following the story. Uh, what's going on here? So attention has been drawn to some guidelines which were published by Canterbury Diocese in 2015. And it says that the bishop of the diocese has emphasised that any priest who's hearing confession has to say this statement um, prior to hearing that confession. Um, which is that if the person confessing touches on anything um, that raises a concern about safeguarding, the priest would have to pass that information on to the relevant agencies um, and so would basically be unable to keep that information confidential. That's caused a lot of controversy um, because canon law states that anything that is said in the confession um, must um, must be confidential. And the principal of St Stephen's House, Canon Robin Ward, is very concerned about this. You've been speaking to him or you've received a statement from him. Yes, so he has drawn attention to the guidelines for the professional conduct of the clergy. Um, They were also published in 2015 um, and this followed a debate in Synod where there was actually quite a lengthy discussion about confession. Um, And these guidelines state that um, it um, is forbidden for priests to reveal um, anything that has been confessed um, and that applies even after the death of the person who did the confessing. Um, So I think what he's saying is that um, this would make what Canterbury Diocese are advising out of step with church law. That's been echoed today by Ford in Faith, the Catholic grouping, um, who have also um, called for Canterbury Diocese to be basically drawn back into line um, with ecclesiastical law. And Canterbury Diocese came out with this statement, which has had quite a national media pick-up as well, um, from its Diocesan Secretary, Julian Hills, basically disagreeing with Canon Ward. Yes, so we had a statement from the Canterbury Diocesan Secretary, Julian Hills, yesterday, um, and he denies that the guidance has abolished the seal of the confessional. Um, he said it's intended to advise the penitent not to divulge in confession, something which would legally compromise the position of the priest. Um, so that has been interpreted by some as saying that the church is now saying to people, or the church in Canterbury is saying to people, don't tell us, don't confess certain things to us, right. um, because we would then be obliged to, to break the seal. Canterbury Dice have argued that this has actually come about because of a genuine situation where a penitent had shared with the priest information about ongoing abuse um, and that had placed the priest in this kind of difficult legal and moral position. And according to Mr Hills, um, this guidance that was published in 2015 has been drafted after seeking independent legal advice. So Canterbury Dice is saying they're actually trying to help priests out here because some of them are put in a very difficult position where there is a potential conflict between 
yeah, sort of gun I mean, responsibilities and the seal of the confessional. Yeah, I mean, Canterbury also draws on um, the House of Bishops' um, policy for safeguarding children, and that was published in 2010. And that states that there is some doubt as to whether this absolute privilege is consistent with the civil law. Um, so perhaps where this Canterbury policy has come from also is um, uncertainty or anxiety about what might hold up in a court of law. This is actually all being considered currently by a working group which was um, set up by the bishops to um, look into this whole question of confidentiality in the confessional. Um, and their report is due to be discussed by the House of Bishops in December. So I think we can expect to hear more about this um, when that report is um, sort of made public or discussed openly. Um, it is, as I say, something that was discussed at some length um, in Synod in 2014. Do we have any sense of what other dioceses are doing with this? Are they issuing guidance? I think a lot of them would probably draw on this um, 2010 policy for safeguarding from the House of Bishops, which does stress that, um, that canon law constrains a priest from being able to disclose details um, of any crime or offence that's revealed in the course of a formal confession. Obviously, it does also raise that question about this consistency with civil law. Um, and it does also stress, which I think all dioceses would stress, that um, the role of the priest in that instance is to urge the person um, to report it to the police or to safeguarding services. That's also been stressed by Ford in Faith, um, who have said that every priest should know that when a crime of whatever kind is confessed, the confession should be stopped um, and the penitent is instructed by the priest to go to the police and that if the penitent um, sort of refuses to comply with that, then absolution can be withheld. Do you have any sense of how this has gone down with, with priests on, on the ground, particularly in Canterbury Diocese? Um, I'm not sure, so sure about Canterbury Diocese specifically, um, but as I think would probably be expected, there has been um, a lot of upset caused, particularly among Catholic groups. Um, confession is regarded as um, a sacrament and something mm. very precious, and I know that in particular the position of forward in faith is that um, it's not something that's sort of owned by the Church of England, it's owned by the Church, and mm. that it's not really within the remit of General Synod to change the nature of that sacrament. It's fed into, I think, other anxieties um, about the place of the Catholic tradition and things that are sort of deemed to infringe upon that or to marginalise it. So we're currently in Ramadan, and Adam, you've been to an iftar meal, um, an interfaith iftar meal. Uh, yes, last night I was at uh, the St John's Wood Synagogue to take part in an iftar uh, with uh, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, the Bishop of London, uh, the Right Reverend Sarah Mullally, um, the Archbishop of Westminster, and the Chief Rabbi uh, amongst over 100 young people uh, to talk about uh, interfaith matters. Uh, it's the third year, I think, that uh, this is one of these has been organised uh, by the NAS Legacy Foundation. And it was just great to see a real coming together of uh, lots of young people, all of different faiths, um, with these um, great uh, figures in, in, in all of their religions as well. You, you spoke to Sadiq Khan, didn't you? Let's hear some of what he had to say. You can't be complacent and assume people are going to integrate, mix and mingle. We've got to make a conscious effort to get people to mix and mingle. And these relationships are relationships that will last uh, a lifetime, I'm hoping, because the experience of breaking bread, forming friendships, for me, not only do you understand 
different points of view, but you realise there's so much more in common yeah. than that which separates us. That's why it's fantastic. And also, what's even more, what gives me even more force of optimism is the age of those who are here tonight. It's not, and I say with respect to my parents' generation, my parents' generation, it's my children's generation, which is why it's fantastic. To have these three people in the same place, but in a room with the Bishop of London, uh, the first ever female bishop, uh, one of her first engagements. In the year we commemorate uh, the first woman in our country getting the right to vote, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, from, it's fantastic. And you know, if you're a young person thinking about, you know, a, you know, Anglican Church, Anglican Church, you know, uh, going forward in, in priesthood or, or that, all that background, it's, it must be inspirational to have Bishop Sarah here. Mm. But also, she's actually a Londoner. Yeah. Uh, and she understands our city, she understands diversity, she understands the role she has to perform, she understand, understands the huge pressure on her shoulders as a Bishop of London, but the first woman Bishop, and I'm sure, I'm sure she'll be fantastic. And she's demonstrated by one of the, her first engagements being an interfaith iftar, potentially, uh, you know, difficult event. And she's just pulled it off brilliantly. She's listening to the young people, and it's mm. fantastic. And this was one of Bishop Sarah Mullally's what, first high-profile engagements as Bishop of London? Yeah, she was only uh, installed as Bishop of London uh, three weeks ago, I think. So really, this is one of her first big engagements. She made a, uh, an interesting speech. Uh, she said that one of the, the best things about coming back to London for her was to come back to the diversity. Uh, of course, she used to be a, um, a parish priest in London, and before that, she, she was a chief nursing officer, so uh, lived in London. Uh, she emphasised how important this diversity was in the capital and uh, how much she was looking forward to, to really tackling interfaith matters. She also spoke about the work of the Church of England's Near Neighbours programme, uh, which is something she's been supporting uh, and said she'd been to Southall recently in West London to, mm. to, to see the, the impact that's had in bringing together uh, people of different faiths. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.